Greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Lessons from Leaders, and thank you for tuning in again. We're here with Carl Hoffman, who was referred to me actually by Sean Callahan, an earlier guest. Uh, Sean is the CEO from CRS, Catholic Relief Services. And when I asked Sean who he'd like to hear from, what leaders he would like to hear their wisdom, he mentioned Carl. So Carl very graciously said he would come and be a guest and let us know his experience and his thinking. So welcome, Carl. Thank you, Lynn. And thank and you to Sean for recommending me. Yeah, did I say where you're, did I say where you work? No. <laughs> so Carl is with uh, PSI and he's been with PSI since 2007. Right. And um, before then he was a diplomat and Carl, why don't you give us a quick overview of your background? How did you get here? Sure. Uh, as you mentioned, I've been at PSI for the last 12 and a half years, which seems to have gone by like that. Um, prior to that, I worked uh, at the U.S. State Department in the Foreign Service as an American diplomat. So I've had two jobs in my professional life, really, because mm. uh, I did that after graduating college. Um, spent a lot of time in the Foreign Service working in and on Africa. Um, and uh, issues in the developing world. And so uh, was delighted to get the chance to come to lead this great organization that works on global health in the global south. And so that's a, it sounds like a big switch from being in the diplomatic arena to leading an NGO uh, in global health. Excuse me. What did you, what were some of the big surprises for you or the steep learnings? Yeah, I think a lot of people assume it's been a very, it is a very uh, uh, different scenario, but actually I found it not as different maybe as I expected it to be. Um, let me say why, and then I can talk about some of the differences that I did encounter. I mean, the things that make diplomacy, my experience in diplomacy and running PSI similar are the following. I mean, as I mentioned, I spend a lot of my time in the Foreign Service working in Africa and in the Global South, which is where PSI works. And, you know, uh, diplomacy, when you're overseas, at least, involves um, a small group of expatriates, diplomats who move around the world, but a large uh, cohort of people who staff American embassies abroad, foreign service nationals, and who really are the continuity at all of our locations overseas. And that's very much the same for my organization. We have a big presence overseas in about 50 countries and almost 7,000 people working for us, but a very small group of those move around the world. So that operating environment with a, a, a group of people who cycle around, but a, a very important group of people who stay where they are, working in some tough environments, uh, was something I was very familiar with at the State Department. I would, I would say some of the differences um, have come from the fact that, you know, it's... Uh, it's a challenge sometimes to work uh, in these very hard parts of the world uh, outside the, uh, let's call it the protective cocoon of the U.S. government. Um, you know, PSI is operating as a social marketing organization, and we work with the support, hopefully, of the host government and obviously our donor organizations. But, uh, you know, we don't have diplomatic status. We have to navigate all of the complexities of operating in a foreign environment on our own. Uh, those 
complexities change and get more complex, it seems, every year. So there's a significant burden to understanding exactly how to operate within all the rules, both that come from our donors, but also that come from our host governments. Um, also in the past, you know, I was obviously working to advance American foreign policy interests and national security interests, and now I'm working more in the interest of our archetypical health consumer. We call her Sarah at PSI, and she is, uh, might come from a very low resource setting. She might be someone uh, who has many things stacked against her, but who is nonetheless deserving of high quality healthcare products and services. And how to ensure that we're working with our own resources, but also orchestrating all the other players in the space to deliver measurable health outcomes for Sarah. Uh, that's one of the great challenges of my current job. Interesting. Thank you. Thanks for letting us showing the comparison and the similarities. And so for you, since this is a leadership podcast, what are what are for you some of the key I don't know, I was gonna say attributes. The key, what leaders need to be do, do to be successful, what you find in your being a leader, what you're doing that you found to be successful to lead people, to lead an organization, to get to the results that you're looking for. I suppose those are the sorts of questions you, you should actually ask the people I lead. <laughs> that will be better, the next interview. That's right, they're a better judge of how well I do at this. but. I'm assuming that in your work, Lynn, you encounter a lot of people who lead in different circumstances, and you've done that over a period of time. And certainly in the nonprofit world, in the international uh, non-governmental organization world, I suspect the qualities that yield successful leaders have changed over time. The expectations on leaders have mm. changed over time. This is a, it's a pretty democratic workplace. Uh, people expect to have a lot of input into decisions. I'd say it's a very collaborative workplace, and I don't think that's unique to PSI. I think that's true for probably most nonprofit organizations. Those are the skills that modern leaders are expected to display as they run enterprises that are involved in delivering social good. I think that, you know, the days when maybe you had to rely on more of a command and control environment with decisions coming down from on high, those days are obviously behind us. And so good and successful leaders have to know how to lead collaboratively, have to lead in a group setting, have to figure out how to bring a multiplicity of voices together, have to be really good at listening. And you know, I'm not sure I always am, but I'm certainly aware that that's a crucial skill set for leaders today. So what do you, how do you lead collaboratively or do your listening? Like what are some, how do you, what do you attempt to do and when do you attempt to do it? Well, uh, I think, you know, the one secret of great leadership success is obviously surrounding yourself with really high quality mm. and very capable people. And I'm blessed to have that. I certainly inherited that at PSI and I think, We've done well over the last 10 years to keep, last 12 years to keep uh, a very high performing group of senior leaders in the organization and to grow them and to find them and to bring them in. So lesson number one, surround yourself with great people. Lesson number two, uh, get out of their way. 
Um, you know, I don't see it as my job to do the work of all of my subordinates and my deputies. I think I can do a lot of their jobs and I might not do it as well as they can, but I could if I had to, but that's really not what I'm here for. You know, my role is to help ensure that they're properly resourced, that they're guided in the right strategic direction, that they're connected with the right other resources in the company, and to give them uh, a positive orientation. So, you know, that's how I try and bring collaborative leadership skills to my role. I would say I also, in terms of listening, um, all of us can do better at that. Uh, I work hard at it. I try and open myself to all sorts of points of view at all sorts of different levels within the organization. I have a group uh, every year of, of I, would, I would say, younger employees. They're not necessarily younger, but they have uh, more junior tenure in the organization. And um, they form a, a group of mentors to me so that I'm able to hear from the grassroots exactly what's happening in the company and what things need to be fixed. So I try and employ a lot of different tools to make sure I'm listening to the pulse of PSI. And you had told me earlier about the younger people mentoring you, which I thought was so interesting. And since we talked, I saw an article about it. Can you just oh, give a little bit of um, just very briefly how you, you know, how you that program, how you do that? Because it is formal. It's not just. No, it's formal. Yeah, yeah. it's formalized. Well, in my case, it was suggested by a, a relatively junior employee probably three years ago. Um, she was involved with a working group that we had to address this problem. I can't remember what it was, actually. Um, and I always have tried to make myself available to all different levels of the, of the company. She suggested that it would be great to have a more formalized way for more junior people to give me feedback. And so on her suggestion, at one of my regular town halls, I in, invited people to express interest in a mentor program where they could be mentors to me. Um, you know, we're surrounded as leaders by lots of opportunities for coaching, and we're expected to be mentors ourselves. But I thought there's no reason why many people with, you know, much less seniority than me in the company couldn't give me some valuable feedback as well. So... I've opened that up. I, I'm now in my third cohort of uh, what I call the Mentor Up program. And it starts out at the beginning of a year with about eight people, which we try and draw from a, a diverse uh, sort of professional setting across headquarters. It's only been headquarters. Well, it's been headquarters and the field now. Uh, over the course of the year, attrition happens. People leave to go to other jobs. But we've always managed to keep it by the end of the year to around six. And I meet with them every couple of months. We have lunch, I think, coming up later this week. Uh, sometimes there's an agenda for that. Sometimes there's not. But the idea is to make sure there's a channel of communication that's open to me. And, and we work hard to make sure that everybody within PSI knows that those individuals are mentors to me so that if they want to get a message to me, but they're, for some reason, unwilling to come see me directly, they can do it through them. Thank you. Thank you for taking a minute to talk that one through. I've, um, I, w I hope that others follow that. That's a, such a great program. I've enjoyed um, it. I've yeah. enjoyed it. I really have. And very, um, shows a lot of openness on your part to, to be participating and listening to people at that level. So. I also want to talk about failure, another subject that you and I talked, 
talked about and when when we talked about it earlier you said um that transparency is your friend and you have a lot of experiences failure and i my note is i think of it as anti-gravity but i'm not sure what i meant by that <laughs> i think i was i i remember our conversation i i think what what's the interesting thing that i've encountered in this role is um the more we screw up um i have to be careful how i put this but um the, the more we stake mistakes we encounter in our work programmatically or even in terms of financial stewardship of other people's money, because that's what we do at nonprofits, um, the more we encounter problems there and share the fact that we've had a problem, the better it is for us. I think the tendency is when you encounter a problem or you make a mistake or you realize there was an error in your own procedures or your program didn't achieve what you set out to achieve, you know, there's probably a natural tendency to try and dress it up as a success or hide it under the carpet. But I think in, in the sense that it's anti-gravity, you know, the, the opposite turns out to be true in the world of nonprofits. Donors, I think, are tired of hearing people tell them how brilliantly everything has worked out when we all know that things don't work out so brilliantly, that we're in a non-linear business. And if all these projects were working out perfectly, then the development challenges of today would have been solved already. Um, donors also know that we work in very high risk and often corrupt environments. And the expectation, even though they may have an expectation that we will perfectly manage all their resources, sometimes things go wrong. And when we tell them, when they hear problems from us as opposed to from other, some other source, our reputation, I think, goes up in their eyes. So I think that's probably what I was referring to as the anti-gravity reality or principle of failing in development. The more you share your failings, the more value your learnings are to others. And uh, I've certainly seen that in evidence here. Uh, we've had our share of failings and mistakes. The more we talk about them, uh, the better it is for us. Is there a NGO community culture thing culture habit around not sharing failings and if so is that shooting the progress in the foot so to speak good question i don't know i mean mm. you might want to ask everybody else that you interview a, a variation on this question because i'm not sure the ngo community is any different from any other place um it's not a natural tendency to run toward your mistakes and shine a light on them I think we can think, you know, open the daily newspaper. You can think of many examples of things that have gone wrong that have been uncovered by others, not disclosed by the actors mm -hmm. themselves. It turns out, I think, until I'm, you know, I encounter something that makes me rethink this, my view is that you're always better served by disclosing. And then, so how does that translate to personal failures, which we all do all the time have? Yeah. And then when our staff aren't up to, when they there are failures on their part, those are... I think, yeah, I mean, I, um, so modeling the right behavior is really important for every leader, of course. I think one 
behavior that's important to model is how you deal with adversity and problems, including mistakes that you may have made or been a part of somehow. Uh, people need to see positive examples of how their leaders manage adversity so that they can learn and be able to display that same behavior themselves. Uh, we can all probably think of people that we admire in public life or in our families who have done that well and others that we know could have done better. And I certainly try to be among those who can acknowledge mistakes and do, do so forthrightly and hopefully model the right behavior around them. Because as you say, we all make mistakes. It's inevitable. Yeah. Even though we're all trying to be perfect in our different ways. Can you, is there any stories you can think of of one time that you had to out yourself on? Hmm. Well, I think early on in my tenure, one of the, one of the leadership's mistakes that I did make early on at PSI was probably not making a senior management change as fast as I should have. There was mm. someone in a role who just wasn't well suited to the challenge. And I think I kept that person in that role probably a year longer than I should have. And it would have been braver of me and smarter of me to make a transition sooner instead of carrying along a, a situation that wasn't working so well. And I realized that too late. I eventually did make a change. My life got much better as a result of that. And I tried to be explicit after that, that I recognized that that was a failure that I, you know, that I owned. Thank you for that story. And what I appreciate about it is that there's so many people that are going to resonate with that story because that's one of the challenging situations is when do you move on? When do you let somebody go? So thank you for, for sharing that. Yeah, I, I've also come to realize over time that although this is really hard, I think, for many of us to do, um, the most respectful way you can treat somebody who clearly is not, is struggling in a situation or who may be great in a situation, but who, because you have resource constraints, you can't keep necessarily where mm -hmm. you'd like to, the most respectful way to treat anybody like that is directly and quickly. And just to be honest with people, people deserve honesty. Thank you. Uh, and having, I know that for myself, I would prefer to know than have you drag it along and yeah. all of us are unhappy and yeah. I agree. We also talked about Carl, um, when we talked earlier, we talked about what other things you wanted to, might be of interest to hear from others or yourself. And it was about What's it like managing now in this current situation that we're in that you yourself wanted to know how other leaders are processing our, the current political situation, how it's impacting people? And, um, and so what, what can you share with us about how you're navigating those waters? Yes, I remember we talked about that. I think... Um, probably two aspects to that. One is, you know, the, the workplace of today is different and expectations are different in the workplace of today than even 10 years ago. And how to ensure that we are leading appropriately and setting the right standards and boundaries in, around workplace behavior and the right, inculcating the right values at work, I think is something that no leader can afford to have too far from her or his uh, 
mind at any given time. And that, you know, uh, I sense that that is just you know, the, the, a new a new standard has been set in terms of what we all expect the workplace to be, not only safe and supportive, but also fundamentally healthy, mm-hmm. and uh, a place where people can really achieve their best um, outcomes, uh, both for themselves and for the group. And so, you know, that's something that I think leaders have to be mindful of all the time. The other thing is maybe a little bit more episodic, and that is the current political moment in the United States, which is so negative and so filled with acrimony and some would say hatred in the public space, right? Uh, we, you know, you do not have to go far from your computer or your phone or your newspaper or whatever other news source you have to be confronted by that. And all of us process that in different ways. I've come to realize, probably an obvious realization. You know, I have a lot of experience listening to what I would consider to be nonsense coming out of the mouths the mouths of leaders. But my younger employees may have very limited experience with that. And I realized I needed to be sensitive to the fact that a lot of my employees are running are are are, are on a daily basis probably balled up in anger and frustration and mm. or fear based on what they're hearing in the public space in the United States in, in terms of our current political discourse. So that's something I'm trying to work on being a lot more forthright about and giving people, uh, acknowledging that, getting people a chance to talk about it. You know, the workplace isn't a place for partisanship, but it can, it should be a place where people can reflect on what's happening in the day, in, you know, in, the, in their lives around them. And so I, I'm trying to make sure that we have space for that too. And what does that look like, making space for it? Well, creating conversations. I mean, I, I uh, sent a message recently around to all staff at PSI, giving my own views about uh, diversity and inclusion in the workplace and whether people belong or don't belong. You know, that's been in political discourse recently. I don't know when this this uh, interview of ours will air on your podcast, but people will think back to a time when that was very topical. Um, so, you know, more, more proactive messaging on my part. Uh, I have a town hall meeting coming up tomorrow and I'm gonna make sure that I address this head on as well. And just acknowledge that some people may be feeling angst and fear. And, you know, my answer to that from the beginning of our current moment in American politics has been twofold. One <clears throat> is to say, uh, I have a lot of trust in America's institutions and I have a lot of experience with them and uh, that I hope I can inspire others to have trust as well. You know, our system was not built based on individuals. It's built on institutions and the institutions are pretty, are pretty resilient. And the other thing is, you know, this, my organization works in reproductive health among other things and full spectrum reproductive health. And I think, uh, it's critically important for us to succeed in that mission now more than ever. And so, you know, I tell our people to bring your best game to work. That's sometimes the best way to respond to what they're hearing around them. So it's just surprising to me that I have not had this conversation before because it is, there's so much happening in in the political space, as you said, and, um, and I think that I have been just 
that's separate from people going to work, but they're bringing it to work. It's with them. They're carrying the emotions or the fear. So thank you for bringing this forth. And if, if others are doing it, I'll find out about yeah. not making it a firewall because it isn't actually, there is no firewall. There is no firewall in right. our lives. You, you know, we, we, we erect temporary barriers right. and, and we believe that the workplace should be kept free of this. But, you know, our office is in Washington, D.C. You can't avoid this in Washington, D.C. right now. Everybody here is somehow connected or affected by what's going on in politics. So, w again, without being partisan, we need to be able to recognize the impact that that has on people. I'm glad that we, we talked about that. The other thing that I wanted to make sure that we touched on was advice to your younger self or advice to up-and-coming leaders, whichever, however you want to think about it. So if you look back at yourself, at your younger self, what do you wish you know now that you wish you knew yeah. then? <laughs> I, you know, I feel like I learn so much every day. Uh, it's hard to catalog the things that I didn't know years ago. Um, one is certainly what I alluded to earlier, the, the need to act expeditiously when there's a problem that you know is not going to get solved. So rather than manage it, you just need to resolve it. And often that means a personnel change. That's one message to my younger self. The other, I would say, is um, to never lose sight of the fact that when you're in a leadership position, particularly now, um, every word, every gesture, every facial expression, every mood that you convey is magnified. Uh, people read things into how you're walking into the building that you don't necessarily intend to convey, but nonetheless, you know, the message I suppose here is you're always on. As a leader, you're always on. Uh, people expect you to be confident despite adversity. People expect you to be energetic even though you may not be, uh, because they need a sense of positive energy. And now probably more than ever. So that's my advice to younger leaders or leaders who are earlier in their leadership journey is, is to remember that you're always on. You're always on. It's, it sounds kind of tiring. It sounds kind of exhausting. I think it can be for some people. I, you know, uh, I used to think that I was an introvert, but or modestly an introvert, but I came to realize that actually I get energy from being around people, my colleagues and others. And um, so that's sort of been a liberating realization for me. I, I like this. I like this challenge. I enjoy it. I mean, that's what my job is after all. Thank you. Then you're in the right job. <laughs> well, as I said, that's up to my colleagues and ultimately up to my board of directors, but I hope so. Well, at least we know that you're at one of your peers thinks you're doing a good job. Yes. Since, and I, since Sean pointed at you and said, I want to hear from him. <laughs> and I thank Sean for that. Sean and I sit on a board together. We often refer to it as the strange bedfellows board, US, U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. Uh, but, you know, it's a lot of different organizations with different perspectives coming together to try and make sure there's uh, robust funding for America's role in the world, which I think is important. 
And anything that we haven't talked about that you hoped that we would? Uh, no, I don't think so. Thank you, Lynn. I mean, obviously, you've got a lot of experience interviewing lots of different leaders. Um, it's, it's a privilege to be able to talk about this role. It's a, certainly a privilege to have a role like this. Um, I know I will look back on this chapter in my life with great affection and fondness because, uh, you know, the ability to try and lead and motivate a group of high performing, highly motivated individuals whose mission is to save and improve lives around the world. It just doesn't get much better than that. So I feel very privileged. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. Thank you.